No, not really. <laughs> I was looking, I was like, okay, I'm assuming it's not. Okay, we have a nursery, uh, maybe the most qualified nursery of, of any organization in uh, the city because uh, my wife with a PhD uh, in uh, speech language pathology will be doing that. So the beauty is your kids get fee free speech therapy also if they go to the back. <laughs> and if you've had to deal with that, you know that can be a little pricey. By the way, Juan, I have that same Bible and I love it. Also, I've been wondering, did you notice a sound coming up behind us? Apparently I had the volume on the, uh, the YouTube channel on my phone. Oh, I didn't hear that. Did you not hear? I kept on hearing, I was like, why does it sound like my voice coming from somewhere? So the good news is I know the volume is working. So we are going through the gospel according to John now. And for most of you, you know this, we go through a book of the Bible at a time, uh, going from Old Testament, New Testament, except for twice a year, where we focus on Lent and we focus on Advent. But uh, today we are almost halfway through the gospel according to John now. So uh, chapter 10, verses 22 through 41, if I remember right, and Abishua is going to be uh, my helper so I can read from my Bible. Uh, I would encourage you guys, uh, the scripture is always around us, but if you've heard me speak before, you know that I can get a little boring uh, or I can chase rabbits. And uh, if you get bored, I will not be offended if you read uh, scripture. This is God's word. What I say is not God's word. I'm never offended if you're like, you know what? I'm just going to read this instead of listening to Robert. Uh, it will not offend me in the slightest. Uh, but since I have said that like three times now, maybe it does offend me a little and I wasn't thinking about it. Um, so Bishop was going to operate so I can read from my Bible. Uh, this is what the word of the Lord says. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in the Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them, their I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of, the, of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign 
All that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Okay, we're going to try my clicker now, Abishua. We're going to see if it works. Oh, it did work. Or was that you? That was you? Uh, We're going to try. So I'm stealing a parable from from N.T. Wright. If you're familiar with N.T. Wright, uh, he's a British theologian and uh, uh, historian. He's wonderful. He was the bishop of someplace. I cannot remember where he was bishop. All I can think of is Canterbury, and that's not correct. That was Rowan Williams. Um, He's a pretty well-known scholar, and uh, he has a parable that relates to this passage. And the parable goes around violence. He, he describes the master musician dying. And when the master musician died, uh, the city violin guild, because in this parable, there is a city violin guild, came to the master musician's house and looked through his stuff. And while they were looking through his stuff, they found this beautiful piece of music that said, dedicated to the city violin guild. I mean, they were just in awe. They were so proud that he would think of them and dedicate something to them. And as they began to read the music, they understood that one, it was absolutely gorgeous. And two, they could think of no way to play it. There were debates that went on. Was this meant to be played by by three or four violinists, even though it was described as a solo? Was it never actually meant to be played at all? That the master musician just gave this as a piece of inspiration, but it was never meant to actually be played because it seemed impossible. Many violinists tried to play it, but they were never actually able to play it. It haunted them. They talked about it. They set up entire discussion groups in their guild over this piece of music They were inspired by it, but they never could play it. One day, a scraggly young man came into town with a violin. And being the city violin guild, they were instantly intrigued by him, but he he didn't go to the right spots. He, He went off to the side of town. He talked to people that were not really into the right type of music. So they just thought he was a vagrant. Somebody who had a violin maybe played a tune or two and that was it. And they ignored him. Until one day, a member of the guild was walking around the side of town where the young man was and heard the most beautiful music he'd ever heard. He knew enough to know it was the song. It was a song that had been dedicated. It was a song that was impossible to play, the song that they could not figure out how to play, that that needed to be played by three or four different people at, at the least. He went back to the guild and he told them, and they came to hear this music, and all of them knew it was the song. And they became furious. How dare he play this song? It was meant for them. They confronted him and and told him he could not play that. And the young man said, but I am the master musician's son. He's the one who taught me how to play this. What I love about Wright's parable is, is he's using it to describe what's happening here. The the Jewish leaders that we are reading of in this text are people who desperately wanted to follow God. They wanted 
to be righteous and holy. They, they had dedicated their whole lives to focusing on the law, but they were never actually able to live it out. And then they see one come who doesn't fit what they have determined as the standard that the law is supposed to look like. And they see him there, and somehow or another, they kind of understand that he's living out what the law is really all about. It's real easy for us to look down on them and go, oh, I would never respond to that. But we have all responded to people that are doing things that we couldn't do with anger. That we saw somebody else do something and instead of celebrating them, a little bit of jealousy comes up and we get angry as a result. See, we give them such a bad rap, but we do the exact same stuff. What I love in this passage, hey, it worked. That's awesome. Is it begins with this little statement that seems like a little throwaway statement just so that, oh, we, we have a time. It says this. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. Now, you may not know this, but there's a really good chance you already know what the festival of dedication is. If I show you this photo right here, what do you think the festival of dedication is? I heard Hanukkah. Hanukkah is, it is the festival of lights, but it's also the festival of dedication. The reason it's the festival of dedication is it's all about the Maccabean revolt and the rededication of the temple. So that you have an understanding before the Maccabean Revolt, Alexander the Great, who you may have read about in history, you probably learned that he was great. That's what most of us learn in history. He took over this region. He, matter of fact, didn't just take over this region. As far as the West was concerned, he took over, took over the entire known world. Now, we know that's not true, but as far as they were concerned, this was the known world. This was the world. He took over the world, therefore he was great. He was great at taking over the world. Matter of fact, the saying is, is that he cried because there was no more world to take over. He was not great at passing on a heritage. And so when he died, his empire kind of split. And a large chunk of that is what's known as the Seleucian um, uh, Empire. And it was called that because one of his generals who became king was Seleucid. And they took over the region that we would know as the Middle East. A lot bigger than that, but for here. And they spread what's called Hellenism. Now, does anybody know what Hellenism is? You, you actually, Greek culture, right. Spread it everywhere. Because Alexander was convinced that everybody should be Greek, and therefore those people who followed him were convinced everybody should be Greek. And what happened in uh, the ancient Near East, specifically in Israel, is you had a group of people who were like, we are, a set, we are people set apart. We're supposed to be different. That is inherent to their culture. We are set apart, a people of God's own choosing. And then you have conquerors come in and say, you need to be just like us. And the Maccabean revolt was all about two things. One, getting rid of Hellenism. Well, three things. One, local rule. Two, getting rid of Hellenism. And three, rededicating the temple. They needed to cleanse it. They needed to get rid of all of the Hellenistic culture that had been brought into it and rededicate it to God. And Hanukkah Yes, it is about the lights, <laughs> but it is primarily about the day the temple was rededicated back. This was a big, big deal because, again, well, here, 
The people of God were supposed to be the people of God. Deuteronomy says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. One of the things I love, Deuteronomy, Deuter means second here. This is Moses basically saying everything that he said beforehand because he's about to die. Think of a pastor who knows that he has some type of chronic illness and he's going to die. And he goes, oh my gosh, I've got a year. I'm going to repeat everything that I was really important. Deuteronomy is Moses saying, this is the most important thing. And he comes back to, you are God's chosen people. That's how important this was to Moses. Be set apart. Be different. It was brought into the New Testament too. Peter does this. He says the following. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, uh, wonderful light. I think of it like this. Does anybody have any china? Now, to be honest, most people don't anymore. Okay. Why are you raising your hand like you're embarrassed? That's a wonderful thing. I think China's great. And the reason I think that China is great is because, well, it was given a long time ago. So like we, we have newlyweds here two weeks now? Three weeks. Three, three weeks. I mean, you get you, a month. No, it was not a month ago. I was at your wedding. It's three weeks. Ooh, we're about to see their fight. <laughs> <laughs> all right, three weeks. So they've got it all figured out now. Um, but guys, younger couple, or not younger couples, this doesn't happen. You did not get China, I'm going to guess. Did you really? That's awesome. Okay, so, well, because, and it, I, I actually agree. I think your generation made the right choice. My generation is like, well, you have everyday wear, and then you have China. Now, for most people, they never use their China. There's a reason you can go to any pawn store in the world right now and buy silverware for next to nothing. Because at one time it was like, we need fancy silverware. And now, I, like Adam, my oldest son at one time, had silverware for my mother. Because you can't even sell it anymore. It's not worth anything. Even the silver on it, it's plated, so it's not that big a deal. But the beauty of China that I think is awesome is when it's used and used properly, rather than just put somewhere, it takes any meal and makes it special. One of the things I love about my wife, and I can brag on her because she's back there, I hopefully brag on her in front of her, is we regularly use our china. Many of you, I know you have eaten on our china because we use it anytime there's some special occasion, we use our china and we use a red plate called the special plate because if you eat on the special plate, you're special. I love it though. Probably every other month we eat on our china and it takes any meal and it becomes special. God looked at his chosen people and he said you were special. Not in the point of you're set apart to exclude everyone else. They were set apart to proclaim how wonderful he was. It's a concept that's just not from the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And it was what this celebration was supposed to be about. But instead, the Jewish leaders focused on whether or not Jesus said things in the right way. And when I say right there, I don't mean right as in Scripture, because they were no longer just concerned with whether or not the Scripture was 
uh, authoritative. They had decided that their interpretation of the Scripture was authoritative, and there's a big difference. This is the holy inspired Word of God. I believe it is authoritative. But what I say about it is an interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be a good or a bad interpretation. But my interpretation always has to be, be taken with a great deal of humility. I could be wrong. The second I say my interpretation is authoritative, we are on dangerous territory. Now, there are things that have generations of the church saying it. There are things that are really strong, strong statements that we can make. We know God is Trinitarian. But there are other statements that we go off and, well, it may be important to me, but I can't say, no, you're not a Christian because you don't believe this one thing. The Jewish leaders were looking at Jesus and they were saying, you're not doing the, th the things the way we say the law is supposed to be interpreted. And they say he's blasphemous as a result. Now, here, this is the definition that pulls up for blasphemy uh, on Google the second you type it in. One of the things I like on Google is it shows you the occurrence. We have an uptick on the use of blasphemy. I find that interesting. If you notice really big 1800s, goes down. Look at that, little uptick right there. I don't know who's doing it, but somebody's writing about blasphemy a lot more than they were a few years ago. But anyhow, it's this, the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things, profane talk. They were saying that, Jesus was saying that about God, which is untrue. Think of that. They looked at all of his actions, all that he was saying and preaching to them, and all the healings that he was doing, and they said, you are saying and living out things about Yahweh that are the opposite of his nature. They accused God of being sacrilegious. I love the way our, our, our Lord responds to this. He doesn't argue with them. He says, look at the works. He gets a little snarky, and, and I think it's snarky here. The problem uh, with interpretation is we can't pull it in when things are being snarky, such as, when Jesus talks at one time, he says that if you have a, 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 um, a speck in, excuse me, if your neighbor has a speck in their eye and you go to pull it out, well, you might have a beam in your own eye. I think there's a great deal of snarkitude in that because I just picture Jesus having this mental picture of somebody trying to remove a speck from somebody else's eye with a beam in theirs. If you just think about it, they would beat the ever-living snot out of somebody with that, that beam in there. Just like every time you turn your head, boom, boom, boom. Uh, I picture two, you know, like two people having this and somebody else talking to them and saying, no, you can't do it like that. What? Just beating them to death with these. I think there's a lot of times where there's some humor in this. And I picture Jesus just having a little fun at this point. Like, which of the works, which of the works that I just did are you saying are sacrilegious? Was it when I healed the blind man with the spit? Was that what it was? When I created the mud uh, out of my spit, was that the sacrilegious part? Oh, or was it the lame person? Or was it the woman who had the bleeding for 12 years? And, and you know, was that sacrilegious? Should I just continue to let her bleed? Is that what it is? Oh, or was it, you know, the child that was really sick? Was that the one? That's got to be the one because you don't want sick people healed. You want them off here instead. Jesus points back to them and says, which of those works? Now they come back and say, oh, it's because you said you were God. And he 
quotes scripture them. And we're going to read the whole passage, okay? It's from the 82nd Psalm is what he's quoting. Here, this is it. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Uh, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, there's the portion right there that says, I said you were gods. The beauty of our faith being a historical faith, and what I mean by that is our faith is in history. We have historical elements to it. It is beyond history, but we can go back and we can find the coins that Jesus references. Uh, the towns that are mentioned in the Old Testament, they can be found and they have been found. We're not a faith where it's just mythology in the sense of nothing it's based off of. We're a faith where our stories come from historical events and historical places. Because of that, we actually know how some of the rabbis were interpreting this passage during the time period of Jesus. And the way they were generally interpreting this passage was this was written about the people of Israel at the bottom. The psalm was not written. It's referencing when they were at the bottom of Mount Sinai. When God gave them the law, the psalmist is saying, you're like gods now. Now, we so often think of gods in power, but he's meaning you're like gods in the sense of you should live holy. You should live out my way. You're like gods in the sense that you are my ambassadors. You're like gods in the sense that you live in the kingdom of God. And you read the whole psalm and it says, you're not doing that. Now, we know we live in a fallen world, and the reality is we can't do it. But he references back to something they would have known, that they would have instantly had known. We're not living out as gods. We're not living out as his representative. We're not living out as holiness. But he uses that to come back to them and, and say, you're saying I'm blasphemous, but I'm doing the works of, of God. I'm following the Father. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. If you remember, at the beginning of this passage, I talked about the, the uh, secluded uh, kingdom, the empire. This is where it covered, okay? It shaped everything during their world. Like, we're shaped by the culture we're in. But this was groundbreaking. It changed the way people viewed everything around them. I think, truthfully, we've had a wonderful example over the past two weeks, which is, is a terrible example because I hated it, but it is a wonderful example. And, and it's this. This is my drive from, from Racine uh, this past, I think Thursday. It may have been Wednesday. It looks just normal, okay, except for... We all know Wisconsin skies during the summer. What color should that be? Yeah, and it should be a crisp blue. I love it when there's just a few clouds 
Not when it's super cloudy, but when it's a few clouds and they just make the blue all the bluer because that white's there. But instead, it's just a gray haze. And it's hard to see on this, this photo, but if I enlarge it, that's about two miles away. You, many of you have driven to Milwaukee from here. You know you should be able to see all over the place. You should be able to see the windmills that are off on the western side of the road. I took photos of that. I didn't use it because the reality is you could not see them and even enlarged, you couldn't see them as well as you can see the water tower right there. Over the past two weeks, the smoke has come and made it next to impossible to see the wonderful, gorgeous uh, Wisconsin area. I drive by and I see deep green and and farmhouses and barns. And Pam and I will see it and we'll go, oh, that's Wisconsin. It's gorgeous. But for two weeks, all we've seen is smoke. The Hellenism that affected the ancient Near East, that's what the Feast of Dedication is about, was getting rid of that. It was about saying we suddenly see the world from the perspective that is not the perspective of God and we need to wipe that away. The whole celebration of Hanukkah is about this remembering when the Maccabeans came and said, we are followers of Yahweh. They would not have actually said Yahweh because that would have been using the Lord's name in vain as far as they were concerned. So they would have said we were followers of Adonai. But you get my point. They were bringing the kingdom of Israel back. And for a few years, they did. But the reality is, instead of seeing things the way God wanted to see them, they saw things the way they wanted to see them. We have smoke in our vision all around us. It's something we truthfully can't avoid. We have worldviews that we are just born into, and they're the way we see the world. But we constantly need Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We need Scripture to constantly be reshaping the way we see the world because that smoke is a negative, but it also can be a positive. Our, our view can be shaped by the Hellenism that, that the Maccabeans were scared of. It can be shaped by things that are opposed to God, but it can also be shaped to where we see the world through Jesus-colored glasses. I think of, of the story of the prodigal son, excuse me, of the Good Samaritan. I don't know why I'm saying the prodigal son. As an example of this, because if you remember the way this story comes about, is Jesus tells a young man, a rich young ruler, to go and take care of those around him. And his question to kind of answer Jesus is, who's my neighbor? The whole reason he tells the story is to answer the young man's question of who is my neighbor? And for 2,000 years, we are still struggling with that answer. For 2,000 years, we still come back and try to go, yeah, but they're not my neighbor. Jesus literally picks the young man's enemy and tells a story where he acts as a good neighbor and then tells the young man, now you go and do likewise. 
But our vision is still so clouded that instead of seeing everyone, and people we may legitimately disagree with, people that we may say, no, you can't do that, but we still choose not to see them as our neighbor because our vision is clouded by all of the stuff around us that is not the way of Jesus. And the reality is, that's blasphemy. When we try to use God's word to do the things that we know Jesus would not want, it's blasphemy. The Jewish leaders accused the Son of God of blasphemy when the reality is they were the ones that were not following the one they proclaimed as Lord. I believe we constantly need to be asking ourselves and more importantly asking the Spirit to search us, to tell tell us, what is it in my vision that is making me see the world the way I want to see it rather than the way you want to see it? Because think of what the world would be like if we saw everyone around us and said, that's my neighbor, that's my neighbor, that's my neighbor. I don't think it means there would be no more wars. There are things we legitimately fight over. But it would change the way we fight. I don't think it would mean there would be no more arguments. There are times where we need to argue because there are, are different expectations and different priorities, but it would change the way we argue because we would be constantly saying, I completely disagree with you, but you're my neighbor. I had brought this quote up, but I just thought of it because uh, Juan and I were talking earlier. There's a, a wonderful um, Reformed theologian, Dutch Reformed theologian named Abraham Kuyper. It's incredible. I would encourage you to, to read him. Uh, probably some of the best thought on uh, science and faith, uh, which is all the more interesting because he's from the 1800s. But uh, Abraham Kuyper has a statement that uh, I love, and I also think of Finding Nemo every time I hear it. Because he says that there is not an inch in creation that Jesus doesn't look at and shout, mine. Some of you are smiling because you can think of what I'm, why I think of Finding Nemo. I think of the seagulls in Finding Nemo that say, mine, mine, mine. And I picture Jesus looking at all of creation and saying, mine, mine, mine. And I think he wants us to look at everyone around us and say, neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. If that became the way we saw the world, we're still going to mess up. The tune is too complicated for us. There's no way we could ever play the music. The law is beyond our fallen selves. There's no way we could fulfill it. But I am convinced that we would do the works of God because we're following the Son of God. So before I end with how I think we could use this, does anybody have anything to add? Okay, then I'll end just simply with this. Some of us in the room wear glasses. Some of us in the room have contacts. So some of us have perfect vision, and for you, I am very jealous because when I try to work on a a vehicle with my progressive lenses, that makes it very difficult because I'm doing this nonstop. 
Those of you who are glasses wearers, there are a few, not in this room, but in society, who drive me completely nuts, and that is because they never clean their glasses. You may know some people like this. Uh, Natalie apparently knows somebody like this. Oh, I have some in... Okay, I have one in my bag. I'll loan it to you right after this, okay? I carry one with me at all times. You may know somebody like this that you walk up to them, and maybe it's just me. It's just my pettiness. But I see somebody... And all I think to myself is, how in the world can you see? Because I can see the smudges all over their glasses. I can see the dirt all over their glasses, and it just drives me nuts. I want to reach over and just clean their glasses for them. I have jokingly said, I, like, if you come over to my house, there's a really good chance I will clean your glasses for you because I just enjoy doing it. I have considered just setting up a station in the back to clean people's glasses as you walk in here to church. I'm sounding a little petty right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am the George Costanza of glasses, yes. Clean your glasses this week, (laughs) spiritually speaking. (laughs) Ask the Spirit to wipe away all the ways we are not seeing the world the way Jesus wants us to see it. The reality is your glasses spiritually will get dirty again just like these. I clean mine every day. And then probably about halfway through, I realize they're dirty again. We can't actually clean our spiritual glasses. But the Spirit will. We have to ask again and again and again. Because He will perform the works of God through you. So would you join with me in our closing prayer? Praise God from the 